So we're in Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11, and we're going to begin in verse 15, and then we're going to read all the way through the end of chapter 12. So we have a lot to cover. Um, What we want to do first in verses 15 through 19 of chapter 11 is look at the sounding of the seventh trumpet and what that means, what it brings. Um, And then as we walk into chapter 12, I want you to see chapter 12 as really standing alone. Um, Chapter 12 is, as we'll say in a moment, it is at the heart of the whole book of Revelation. It's also at the whole heart of the whole of Scripture. It stands alone because it tells us about the heavenly or spiritual reality Uh, to what we see with earthly sight, what we know about human history. It shows us what's going on behind the scenes. And so we'll break chapter 12 down along these lines. Verses 1 through 6 will show us the exaltation of the sun. Uh, Verses 7 through 12 will show us the exile of the serpent. And then verses uh, 13 through 17 will show us the evacuation of the saints. Um, So first, chapter 11, we'll talk about the seventh trumpet, and then in chapter 12, the exaltation of the sun, the exile of the serpent, and the evacuation of the saints. And as we go through all of that, the one thing that will endure uh, and sort of pull all of this together is the fact that Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and he reigns forever. So let's read together, beginning in chapter 11 and verse 15, and then we'll begin to walk through these things. John writes, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. For you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, And the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Recall that for some time in John's visionary experience, we have been waiting for the sounding of the seventh trumpet. Trumpets one through six were sounded in chapters eight and nine. The first trumpet saw a third of the earth's vegetation burnt. The second trumpet saw a third of the sea turned to blood and a third of the ships destroyed. The third trumpet saw a third of the water made bitter, called wormwood. The fourth trumpet saw a third of the light darkened. The fifth trumpet saw a third of mankind stung by a plague of demonic locusts. The sixth trumpet saw a third of mankind killed by a demonic cavalry. And then in chapter 10, we entered an interlude, a space between the sounding of the sixth and seventh trumpets, in which John saw in the hand of another angel a little scroll, which he was told to take and eat. 
For John to eat the little scroll and find that it would turn his stomach, uh, be bitter, but also to be sweet in his mouth, was for him to consume the word of the Lord, a word that is comforting to the people of God, but horrifying to those who are far from the Lord. What God gives his servants to say is not always pleasant, but it is always right, and it does always accomplish its purpose. So John ate the little scroll and found it was just as he had been told, sweet in his mouth, but making his stomach bitter. And as John prophesied about many peoples and nations and languages and kings, he was given a word of assurance in chapter 10 and verse 7 that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. The interlude continued in 11 verses 1 through 14, where John was instructed to measure the temple, the altar, and the worshipers, all symbols equaling to the sealing of the tribes of Israel and the washing of the unnumbered multitudes of the nations in chapter 7. This was God's way of saying to John and to us that the believing community, all God's people from all times and all places, are held fast by the Lord even in the face of great tribulation. That assurance was comforting to John, and it is comforting to us, because we know that throughout the age of the church, between the first and final comings of the Lord Jesus, both of, indeed all of, the prophetic, illuminating witnesses of Jesus Christ will face the deadly warfare of the beast that rises from the bottomless pit, and be subjected to the reproach of those who dwell on the earth until the day when God brings us to eternal life with those beautiful words of invitation we heard in chapter 11, come up here. The interlude concluded with the enemies of God's people giving glory to God, not as an act of conversion, but of compulsion. In their terror, they finally confessed the truth of God's surpassing glory and sovereign governance over the nations, over all creation. But it proves to be too little too late, for there is no more delay. Immediately following this act, we are told of the beginning of the consummation of human history. The end has come. For John tells us that the seventh angel blew his trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever. The dreadful details that will follow the sounding of this seventh trumpet and mark the dawn of the end of days are not a complete surprise. Recall that in the breaking of the sixth seal in chapter 6, we were thrown forward to the end of days for a moment to consider what will happen when the day of the Lord comes. There John wrote of a great earthquake, the portent of heavenly phenomena, the search and sigh of the elites and the everyday for protection from the onslaught of the wrath of the Lamb. What was clear then becomes clearer now to John. The day of the Lord is not only a day of reckoning for the wicked, but also a day of recognition for the world. The angels will herald the news of the triumph of the Lord God and His Christ, and on that day over the the system of evil once and for all. Since the fall of mankind, there has been, and there continues now, to operate under the leadership of that great serpent who is called the devil and Satan, a kingdom 
of the world. The KJV renders 1115 as kingdoms of this world, plural. But in the Greek, it's the word basileia, singular, one kingdom. The angels are not addressing the triumph of the Lamb over the kingdoms, plural, of men, though that's certainly in effect, but not the primary concern here. George Elton Ladd says the idea is that behind the many diverse kingdoms which have ruled men in human history, there lies a single source of authority. This will be manifested in concentration form in the Antichrist in the last days. Here's a profound bit of theology. Ladd says the evil demonic powers which the church must face in the last days are in principle no different from the autocratic power which the church has had to face in secular states throughout her history. Indeed, what the angels declare is that the kingdom of this world, the system of evil, rebellion, darkness, destruction, oppression, and wrath, which has been at work in the spiritual realm, bearing itself out in the earthly personalities and principalities that have opposed God, is on that great day finally destroyed. And all the power and sway and authority of the kingdom of this world become the property of the Lord God and the Lord's Christ, even Jesus, our Redeemer. It's the focus of the Hallelujah Chorus from Handel's Messiah. Indeed, you remember that the great composer writes, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. The kingdom of this world is become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever, king of kings forever and ever. Hallelujah, hallelujah, Lord of lords forever and ever. Hallelujah, hallelujah, and he shall reign forever. The heavenly announcement of the conquering kingdom of our Lord elicits the worship of the elders. This is, the, this is customary for this rank of angelic beings. Remember that in chapter 4 and verse 10, John saw the 24 elders responding to the lead of the living creatures by falling down before him who is seated on the throne and worshiping him who lives forever and ever. Similarly, when the lamb who stood as though it had been slain came forward to take the scroll from the hand of him who was seated on the throne, the elders fell down before the lamb, playing harps and offering up the prayers of the saints and singing a new song in chapter 5, verses 8 to 10. And in chapter 7, verses 11 to 12, the worship of God and the lamb by the great multitude prompted the elders to fall on their faces before the throne and worship God. So here, in keeping with their work, the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God. The message of their worship underscored rightful order of God's redemptive mission. Indeed, the kingdom of this world had long attacked and subverted the kingdom of God. God, ever long-suffering and patient, diligently pursued the world in an effort to redeem before at last asserting his righteous reign over the world and forcing the wrathful judgment of the devil and all those caught up in his wicked scheme. It's why the elders express gratitude to God. They are grateful that at the last day he will take his great power and begin to reign. 
Don't miss their gratitude and who it's directed toward. It's toward the Lord God Almighty who was and is. The elders are no longer addressing God who is to come. That's because at this juncture in human history, there is no more waiting. God has come once and for all, and he is ever-present from this point forward. As the elders assert, or thank the Lord for asserting his right to reign over the world once and for all, they describe the implications of his reign. They're twofold. The reward of the righteous and the destruction of the wicked. We might think back to the great messianic psalm, Psalm 2. In that psalm, the psalmist asks, Why do the peoples, the nations, rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, his Messiah. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision, then he will speak to them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I'll make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The elders declare that the day has come for the sun to break the peoples of earth, those who have aligned themselves with the kingdom of this world and the devil, to break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like pieces of clay. God's righteous wrath has come, and that wrath poured out will mean negatively the judgment of the dead and the destruction of those who are destroying the earth. But positively, it will mean the reward, indeed the payment of wages. That's the word here in the Greek. The wages of those who fear the name of the Lord. Now you remember that in chapter 11, we were told that the two witnesses were two lampstands, were two olive trees, were two prophets. Because we can see all of those as symbols of the one believing community, here we don't have to see these various classifications or divisions within the, the community of faith. All those who fear the Lord are his servants, his prophets, and his saints. In chapter 6 and verse 10, the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne asked God how long it would be before he avenged their blood on those who dwell on the earth. They were clothed in white robes and told to rest a little longer, you remember. The coming of the wrath of God in chapter 11 is proof that God has heard the cries of his saints and will not leave them without vindication. In verse 19, we read that after the, after the worship of the 24 elders, God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. It's important to understand that the temple was not opened only to John. And the Ark of the Covenant not seen only by John. The temple was opened. The Ark of the Covenant was seen within it. Which is to say it was opened to all of God's people and seen by all of God's people. John isn't describing here the opening of a literal temple in heaven or the sight of a literal Ark within the literal temple. 
When we come to chapter 21 and verse 22, there will be a description of the New Jerusalem. And there we will find that there is no temple in the New Jerusalem because God himself is the temple. Though in chapter 11 and verse 19, John isn't writing about the New Jerusalem. He is talking about the spiritual realities that accompany the day of the Lord. One of those realities is that God's people no longer endure impediments to his presence. Indeed, they're welcomed in. That's what the opening of the temple and the sight of the ark symbolize. In the heavenly places, there's no need for an actual temple. The temple was a symbol on earth of God's presence. In heaven, the presence of God is all-encompassing and everywhere a reality. God wants John to see that when the great day of the Lord comes, God will reward his saints. And the greatest reward of all to the servants of God is the opportunity to dwell in God's presence. A place once only reserved to the high priest and even to him only one day a year. G.K. Beale reminds us that the phenomena of flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and an earthquake and hail has already been repeated a repeated indicator of the last act of judgment. He says that in the Old Testament, such series of cosmic phenomena indicate theophanies, experiences of God. Here the series comes from the innermost part of God's heavenly temple with the seventh trumpet as with the seventh seal. The very end of history has been reached. The combination of the phenomena here emphasizes that God is appearing to execute the final judgment. So we might just pause for a moment and think about everything we've experienced in the Revelation to this point and ask, at this point in the Revelation, where are we on the stage of human history? Um, We are at the end of days. Everything leading up to this, the experiences of Jesus addressing the churches in chapters 2 and 3. The manifest presence of God the Father in chapter 4 upon his throne. The search for someone who could open the scroll of human history and the coming of the lamb who stood as though he had been slain to take that scroll and break its seals in chapter 5. The breaking of six of those seals and flashing forward to the end of human history and the search for cover on the day of the wrath of the Lamb in chapter 6. The sealing of the saints of the tribes of Israel and the washing of the unnumbered multitudes of the nations in chapter 7. And the sounding of the six trumpets in chapters 8 and 9. And the eating of the little scroll by John that was bittersweet in chapter 10 and the measuring of the temple, which is the people of God in chapter 11, so that we are assured that they will withstand the attack of the great beast in chapter 11. All of these things have been pushing us forward to the end of days. But with the blasting of the seventh trumpet in chapter 11, verses 15 to 19, we have now come to the day of the Lord. Now, 
it doesn't seem that way, maybe, because we may want to see clear direction, clear communication, want to see uh, a rapture, a second coming, all those things that we read about in Paul's theology. But John isn't telling us the story that way. It's not that he's denying those things, but it's that he doesn't lay them out in that clear, linear fashion. Remember that the revelation is circular. It comes back to different themes over and over again. But in chapter 11, we have come to the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord, if it is not marked by, uh, by anything else, the one overarching theme of this is the destruction of the system of evil that has been opposed to God and his rule in the world. Because on that day, that system, the kingdom of this world, becomes the kingdom of our Lord in his Christ. And he reigns forever. John will tell us more about this day of the Lord, about what happens now that human history is ending and God is pouring out wrath upon the world and mankind is forced to reckon with that reality. Those things are coming, but as they're coming, John takes a moment to draw us in, to think more deeply and more clearly about what's been going on in human history. What's the significance of, of the battle between the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of the Lord? And so that's what we begin to see in chapter 12. Chapter 12 could stand all by itself. It doesn't flow out of chapter 11. It doesn't really build us into anything else. Instead, what it does is teach us about the spiritual warfare that has been going on between the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God. And it does so by showing us three things. One, the exaltation of the sun, two, the exile of the serpent, and three, the evacuation of the saints. So first, let's read together in verse 1 through 6 about the, ex the exaltation of the sun. John says in chapter 12 in verse 1 that a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore the child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. In many ways, chapter 12 is central not only to the Revelation, but also to the story of Scripture itself. The chapter concerns itself with a pregnant woman on the verge of giving birth to a male child who will rule the nations, a red dragon who has his own satanic power operating on the world stage in the kingdoms of men, who is sitting at the birthing stool ready to devour this child. An archangel named Michael, who with his own angels wages war on the dragon who is thrown down to earth. 
and the deliverance of the woman on eagle's wings to the wilderness for provision and protection from the fury of the dragon. At first glance, these are fanciful, far-fetched, and clearly figurative. But what they symbolize is not a little difficult to understand. But with a firm grasp on the imagery of the Old Testament and the story of redemption and a conviction that these are symbolic descriptions of literal things, the chapter comes into focus. If the seventh trumpet brings about the day of the Lord, in which the war between the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God comes to an end, then the signs depicted here in chapter 12 describe the reason for and nature of that war. Chapter 12 does not progress the story of the end of days, but instead describes a spiritual warfare that has been raging since the time of the fall in the Garden of Eden until now. Chapter 12, verses 1 through 6, tells the story of the exaltation of the sun. John tells us that a great sign appeared in heaven. That sign was a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown with twelve stars. Understand that this woman is a sign. That's our first clue to understanding that she represents or symbolizes something, and therefore may not be a literal woman. That this woman is clothed with the sun means that she is radiant. She reflects the glory of God. That the moon is under her feet speaks of dominion and authority. She's responsible over something. That she is crowned with 12 stars speaks to her royal quality. This woman was pregnant and in the agony of giving birth. Understanding who the woman is centers on the child to whom the woman gives birth. John says that she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. You might remember in chapter 2, Jesus' message to the church at Thyatira, where he promised that the one who conquers and who keeps my words until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father." Jesus there made clear that he had received authority over the nations from his father even as he promised to give such authority to his church. This authority over the nations in chapter 12 and verse 5 and back in chapter 2 and verse 27 is clearly, as it was in chapter 11, a reference to Psalm 2 and verse 9 where clearly the Messiah is in view Because of this, we should understand that the male child born to the woman in John's vision is the Lord Jesus. The question then is this. Should we understand the woman to be Jesus' mother, Mary? So let's consider what else is said about this woman. John says that she was about to give birth. And as she was doing so, the dragon stood before her that he might devour the child. John also says that after her child was caught up to God and to his throne, the woman fled into the wilderness. That last statement is particularly important. It makes it difficult for us to see the woman as Mary herself. If we understand that the child is Jesus, the Messiah, the Son, and if Jesus was caught up to God and to his throne, that can only be a reference to his ascension. 
If the woman fleeing into the wilderness occurs after the ascension of Christ, then this can't be a reference to Mary and her flight with Joseph and Jesus to Egypt, which we might have thought. So the question is, who is this woman? The woman is the people of God, the believing community, the true Israel in all generations. Robert Mounts writes that although the woman gives birth to the Messiah, she's not to be understood as Mary, the mother of Jesus, but as the messianic community, the ideal Israel, he calls it. He says that Zion, as the mother of the people of God, is a common theme in Jewish writings. He references, among other places, Isaiah chapter 54, verse 1. It's out of the faithful Israel that the Messiah will come. It should cause no trouble that within the same chapter the woman comes to signify the church, verse 17. The people of God are one throughout all of history, all of redemptive history. The early church did not view itself as discontinuous with faithful Israel. Then he writes, the Old Testament frequently pictured Israel as a woman in travail. Isaiah speaks of Israel in bondage as a woman with child and about to give birth, writhes and cries out in her pain. We see that same idea carried over in Micah chapter 4. In John's vision, the woman is in travail. She is the true Israel in her pre-Messianic agony of expectation. So what we're seeing in these verses is a radiant woman who represents the people of God aglow with God's glory. The woman has a male child who represents the Messiah who comes from among the people of God. This male child is not devoured by the dragon, but caught up to God and to his throne, which represents that the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, was not defeated by the devil or death, but conquered death through his resurrection and was exalted by the Father to his rightful place. The woman then fled into the wilderness for 1,260 days, which represents the believing community, the church, in the last days, seeking protection and provision from God, while under attack from the dragon. That leaves for us the question of the activity of the dragon and the flight of the woman. John says that the dragon was another sign. There were two signs in these verses. One, the woman, and second, the dragon. Tom Schreiner writes, Heaven isn't free from conflict, for another sign appears in the heavens, a mythological monster, a fiery red dragon with seven heads and ten horns with seven diadems on his head. This parodies Jesus Christ, who's also portrayed in the Revelation as having horns and diadems, chapter 5 and verse 6, chapter 19 and verse 12. We'll pause there just to remind us that you remember last week as we talked about the beast in chapter 11 that we We talked about the fact that there will be a false trinity that parodies the real trinity. The real trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The false trinity, the beast, the dragon, the false prophet. So here what Schreiner is saying is that the dragon in his having diadems and horns, the representations of kings and authority, power, The dragon is parroting Jesus. He's mocking. He's being a false version of the Redeemer, the Messiah. He says the seven diadems on the dragon stand for his ruling authority. The ten horns signify his strength. Then he writes in Daniel, the ten horns are ten kings belonging to the fourth beast. 
Daniel 7, Daniel 7 and verse 7 and verse 24. The link between the numbers of the dragon and the number of human rulers suggests the dragon manifests himself in and through human rulers and authorities. His rule is not limited to one kingdom or one time period. He continues to exert influence in age after age. That's why it's not the kingdoms but the kingdom of this world that becomes the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ. Here we see that the opponent of the people of God is a terrifying monster. That image goes back to the Old Testament where Isaiah prophesies that Yahweh will punish Leviathan, that fleeing serpent, twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. So the great red dragon symbolizes, represents Satan. John writes that the dragon's tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. Daniel 8 described a vision of an exceedingly great goat as opposed to a ram, Daniel chapter 8, that that goat had one horn between its eyes, that the more the goat gained strength, the weaker that horn became and was broken off, and it was replaced by four horns. One of those horns was a little horn that grew great even to to the host of heaven, Daniel says. That little horn threw down some of the stars to the ground and trampled on them. That's in the background of what John's writing about. Most scholars understand that that little horn from Daniel chapter 8 was a reference to the Seleucid king Antiochus Epiphanes and the trampling of the stars knocked out in heaven to the persecution that he worked against the people of Israel in the second century before Christ. If that's right, and I think it is, then the sign of the dragon using its tail to sweep down a third of the stars of heaven is a way of saying that the devil has long been attacking the people of God And just as he attacked God's people before the Messiah came, he was waiting to pounce upon Messiah himself. A waiting that manifested itself in other human things, like the machinations of an evil king, Herod, who ordered the onslaught upon the town of Bethlehem and the slaughter of the innocents in Matthew chapter 2, verses 16 to 18. So chapter 12, verses 1 through 6 depicts the exaltation of the Son by giving two signs. One, a woman who is, in, who is the Messianic community before the coming of the Messiah. She's attacked by Satan, and after the catching up of the Messiah, she flees to the wilderness for protection and provision as she continues to experience the attack of Satan. We'll see that in the last part of the chapter. The second sign is that of a great red dragon who represents Satan, who longs to destroy the Messiah, but despite all his efforts, is unsuccessful because God the Father exalts the Son to his rightful place beside his throne. And in the aftermath of that exaltation of the Son, the people of God are waiting in the wilderness for 1,260 days, which we've come to understand as a way of designating a short period of time and which we here should understand as the age of the church between the first and final comings of the Lord Jesus. The people of God have been to the wilderness before, but like the Lord Jesus in his temptation, we know that we will overcome by the word of God at the last day. So if chapter 12 verses 1 through 6 talks about the 
exaltation of the sun, verses 7 through 12 addresses the exile of the serpent. It says in verse 7 that a war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down to the earth with him or down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. One of the things that we'll try to do at another date, but we can't do it tonight, and I'm not sure we'll be able to do it on a Wednesday night, but one of the things that we'll attempt to do at another time is to think about how our understanding of the devil and his fall have been influenced more by extra-biblical literature than they have by the scriptures themselves. You may not have read these accounts, but things like John Milton's Paradise Lost have more impact on how we understand Satan and his fall than what the Bible actually has to say. And because of that, sometimes we read into the Bible things that are not actually in the Bible. I'll leave it at that for the moment. For now, we accept that the woman is the Messianic community, the people of God. Her male child is the Lord Jesus Christ, and the great red dragon is Satan. If chapter 12, verses 1 through 6, addresses the exaltation of the Son... Chapter 12, verses 7 to 12, addresses the exile of the serpent, of Satan himself. Remember that chapter 12 is revealing the spiritual explanation of the warfare between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. A war that ended in chapter 11, verses 15 to 19, when the seventh trumpet was sounded and the last day came. So here John tells us that at the exaltation of the sun, a war arose in heaven. John tells us that Michael, whom Jude calls the archangel, and his angels were fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. Three things are essential to understanding why this war takes place. First, Scripture teaches that Satan, in his rebellious state, had access to heaven. We need only remember the counsel of the divines in Job chapter 1 and verse 6 and chapter 2 and verse 1 where Satan came among the sons of God and dialogued with God himself. In Zechariah chapter 3, the prophet has a vision of Joshua, the high priest, who is clothed in filthy garments. In that vision, it is Satan who is standing in the presence of the Lord to accuse Joshua of immorality. 
These passages help us to understand that Satan being in God's presence was not out of place at one point in redemptive history. Second, in chapter 12 and verse 9, John makes it abundantly clear that the great dragon is that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. The ancient serpent, of course, is a reference to the temptation of Eve in the Garden of Eden. The term devil means slanderer or accuser. The term Satan means adversary. It is core to who the dragon is to oppose God's people and accuse them before God, constantly reminding God of the sins of his people. Third, we must remember what prompted this heavenly war. This battle began because of the exaltation of the sun. The son was exalted because he secured his right to reign by his death and resurrection. Remember the great Christ hymn of Philippians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul writes there, Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus dealt with the sins of mankind through his death upon the cross. Therefore, God exalted him, giving him the place that he rightfully deserves at the Father's right hand. This reality at the exaltation of Jesus created a conflict. If Jesus has covered the sins of his people in his own blood such that they are justified in the eyes of God the Father, that is declared right, Satan no longer has standing to bring accusations against them before the Father. What John is describing here is the spiritual correlation to the earthly reality. On earth, the sinless Son of Man, Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, gave his life in the place of sinners that the record of our sins might be canceled and our stains might be washed in his blood. After his death, he was raised on the third day and ascended into heaven. In heaven, this created a showdown. Satan no longer had standing to accuse the Father of not dealing with the sins of mankind. Therefore, he had no more place in the Father's presence. He had to leave the presence of God, which he did not want to do. And so he and his angels fought back when Michael and his angels tried to force him out of heaven. But they were not successful. John says that the devil was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown with him. In other words, the serpent was now in exile. John writes that there came a glorious response to the exile of the serpent. 
And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Quite simply, heaven rejoiced in the reign of the Father and the Son, the silencing of the accuser once and for all, and the victory of the brothers. The great celebration gives us insight into how this defeat played out on earth, where in heaven it was a war between Michael and Satan and their respective angels over whether they would have standing to accuse the people of earth any longer, On earth, it was a war between worshiping God and worshiping Satan. That earthly war continues to play itself out in our own day as time and time and time again, the brothers, the Christians, you and me, conquer the devil by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony. Since the ascension of the Lord Jesus and until his final return, The people of God, the brothers, give their lives in sacrifice to Jesus Christ, willing to die on account of his name because he died for us and silenced our accuser. There's a word of warning that comes from heaven after this word of celebration. John writes, But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. So what John's describing in chapter 12, verses 1 through 6, is the exaltation of the Son. Jesus, born out of the Messianic community, dies for the sins of the world, rises in conquering over death, and ascends to the place of the Father who gives him the right to reign at his throne. In chapters 12 and verses 7 through 12, it's the exile of the serpent. When Jesus is exalted, takes his rightful place at the right hand of the Father, it sets up a spiritual heavenly battle. One that took place in real time, but in heaven. Because the serpent no longer has the right to accuse. All of his standing's been lost. He's no longer able to come before the face of God himself and say, those people that you haven't dealt with, they're sinners because God no longer sees us clothed and covered in our sin. He sees us clothed and covered in the righteousness of his son. And so the devil's been cast out of God's presence forever. But he's cast to the earth. He's in exile here. One day to be defeated forever. One day to be destroyed. But not yet. And so in this intervening period, he's been struck down to earth. And so there's a word of warning because he is still at work. He has been defeated, but he is working out the last days of his power. It's the the way in which a serpent, though it has been killed, can still strike. That's what's going on here. We live in this era between the first coming and the final coming of the Lord Jesus And the great serpent, the devil, has been cast out of God's presence because he's been silenced. But though he is a defeated foe, he is still able to strike for now. And so that brings us to verses 13 to 17, where we see the evacuation of the saints. 
John says that when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and, with, and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. So what we have here is a description of the evacuation of the saints. Remember here these images that John's presented to us. They're consistent throughout the chapter. The dragon is the devil, the serpent, Satan. The woman is the messianic community, the believers, those who belong to God, God's people. And the woman's given birth to the male child. That male child is the Messiah, the Son, Jesus Christ. And the dragon desired to destroy the Son, to consume him, devour him. He sat at the birthing stool, ready to destroy him. But of course he wasn't successful. Why? Because the Father caught up the Son, brought him into his presence, exalted him to his right hand. You remember that at the end of... That first section, the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God in which she's to be nourished 1,260 days. Remember that as we walk through chapter 11, we, we saw the story of the measuring of the temple and how as the temple was measured, John was told, don't measure the outer court of the temple. It's given over to the nations, to the Gentiles. John was also told that the holy city was going to be trampled by the nations for three and a half years, right? For 1,260 days, for time, times, and half a time. We talked about the fact that those different ways of acknowledging time, they're, they all mean the same thing. Three and a half years, 1,260 days, time, times, and half a time. And they refer to a short, intense period of time, to a time when God's people are attacked and when God's people are forced to endure hardship and when God's people are forced to trust in the Lord even as trouble is all around them and maybe even their lives are taken. That's in view here as the woman flees into exile, as she goes into the wilderness, as she's looking for a place of protection and provision. The Satan, the devil, the dragon is still on the attack. He's not satisfied with the fact that he's been cast out of heaven. He's not satisfied with the fact that he's not overcome that male child. He is still on the attack. And so the woman requires the protection and provision of God. God's people, God's believing community, the church, requires the protective hand of the Lord. That's why John says in verse 14 that the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly away from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. 
We shouldn't understand the wilderness as a place devoid of difficulty or hardship, as though this is somehow a pure way of escape. She is evacuated to the wilderness, but it's not the wilderness that saves her. Instead, it's that in the wilderness she's nourished, much as the Lord Jesus was nourished in the wilderness. You recall what Mark has to tell us about that time when Jesus was sent out into the wilderness, driven there by the Spirit of God, took the time of 40 days to fast, and then wrestled with uh, the temptation of the evil one. And after that, you remember that God sent angels to minister to him, and he was there in the presence of the wild beasts, Mark tells us in chapter 1. That wilderness experience for Jesus and the wilderness experience of the people of Israel is a reminder to us that it is often in the wilderness that God demonstrates his protective providing hand. But just because God takes his people into a place where we can experience his protection and his provision doesn't mean that we are without difficulty or trouble or attack. The attack of the serpent continues even in this time, this Time, times and half a time, this 1,260 days, this short, intense period of time when the church is waiting for the final consummation of human history for Jesus to come again, there is still an onslaught from the serpent. It says in chapter 12 and verse 15 that the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman. Why? To sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to help the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. In, in other words, the serpent is, is attacking the people of God, the woman. The devil is trying all he can to destroy God's people, to overcome them, and to, to stamp them out from the earth. But God is providing protection from his people, even as his spirit nourishes and sustains them. And so in chapter 12 and verse 17, it says, Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. Now this is interesting because here we have two ways of describing the same group. The woman is the people of God, the church, the believing community, those who belong to the Lord, those who are the servants of the Lord, those who fear his name. All ways of describing the same people. But so are the woman's offspring. Now she had a male child. That's the Messiah. We're not talking about him anymore. Instead, John is talking about her offspring, her children, plural. That's the same way of talking about the people of God, the church, the believing community. You may say, well, how can there be two symbols of the same people, the same group? Well, remember what John did in the letter, the second letter, John, Second John. There in Second John, he wrote to the lady. Right? Do you remember that? He wrote to the to the great lady who was in exile, but he also wrote to her children, and those were ways, symbols. Uh, Types of describing the same people. When he wrote to the, to the elect lady, he was talking about the church as a whole. And when he talked about her, her children, he's talking about her individual members. Well, it's the same thing here. When John talks about the woman, he's talking about the whole people of God. And when he talks about her offspring, he's talking about her individual members, collective and individual, but the same people, those who belong to God. And John says, when the dragon couldn't destroy the whole, 
He, destro- he tried. He set his eyes on. He determined to destroy the individuals. He made war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. We live in this space between. Between the first coming and the final coming. Between Jesus bringing God's kingdom to bear and Jesus causing God's kingdom to destroy and overtake the kingdom of this world. And because we live in this space between, we have the sheer glory of having been made, declared, caused to be right in the eyes of God. He's justified us by faith. But also because we live in this space between, the devil who's been kicked out of God's presence in heaven still has power to affect on the world. And because he can't destroy the church as a whole, he is bent on destroying her individual members doing everything he can to attack us, us who believe in God, us who are witnesses of the Lamb, those of us who hold to the testimony of Jesus. And so as long as we live in this world, until Jesus comes again, there is still a war going on. One day Jesus will come again, And the force of evil, the kingdom of this world, will become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ. But that day has not come yet. And so we are called, each one, to continue in our faith, steadfast, overcoming the attack of the great serpent by the blood of the Lamb and by our testimony in Jesus Christ. We will do so. We will overcome when we love not our lives more than death. Father, I pray that all these things that are somewhat difficult to understand, that, Lord, you would make them clearer in our minds and our hearts as we think upon you. Help us most of all, Father, to understand that your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, has caused the accuser to be silenced because he has dealt with our sins in his body upon the tree. May we, in turn, give our lives wholeheartedly to Jesus Christ and bear an honorable and true witness of him in this life and even unto death. with the full assurance that one day the great serpent, currently exiled to earth, will be destroyed forever. And you and your Christ will reign forever. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.